All right, we are in week number three of this, uh, let's see, five-part series, I believe, and uh, the name of it is True Grit. You know, this building, before we moved into it, it has been many things, but the last thing that it was, it was a Ford dealership, which means, uh, for, at least according to their uh promotion and advertising uh, that the, the vehicles that pulled in here were what? They were Ford what? Yeah, Ford Tough, right? Um, so this series kind of reminds me of that. And we have pulled ourselves into this former Ford Tough shop, and we're going to see if we can get ourselves up on the lift and see if we can figure some things out about this thing called True Grit. Last week, we, uh, two weeks ago, with week number one, we said this, that we can hold on. We can hold on. And that's what True Grit is, holding on. We can hold on, number one, because God is with us. We talked about that in week number one. Last week, Cole taught us this. We can hold on because there is a bigger story on the other side. No matter what we're going through, there is a bigger story on the other side of what we're going through. So we need to hold on. So here's a rhetorical question for you. Nod your head if the answer is yes. Have you ever had a bad day? Yeah. Have you ever had a bad week? What about a bad decade? Yeah, some of us in here have had bad decades too, right? I understand that. I brought a book with me this morning from my childhood, I think, maybe. It's called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I want to give you a glimpse into this little kid's bad day. The way this book works is it starts from him waking up and it goes all the way to him going to bed. And I pulled out a couple of uh, pages I want to read to you. So uh, listen to this. Here we go. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running. And I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I think I'll move to Australia. Well, that could be an answer. He goes on in his day. Now he's at school. Uh, I could tell uh, it was going to be a bad day, he says, because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said that Philip Parker was his best friend and that Albert Moyo was his next best friend and that I was only his third best friend. Well, I hope you sit on attack, I said to Paul. I hope the next time you uh, get a double-decker strawberry ice cream cone that the ice cream part falls off the cone and it lands in Australia. <laughs> he goes on, he gets out of school, now his mom's got him at the dentist. Well, that's what it was bad day, he says, because after school, my mom took us all to the dentist and Dr. Fields found a cavity just in me. He said, come back next week and I'll fix it, said Dr. Fields. Next week, I'm going to Australia. Now we're at home. It's dinner time. He says, there were lima beans for dinner. I hate limas. There was kissing on TV. I hate kissing. Give it a few years. <laughs> he said, my bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. My marble went down the drain. And I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad chain pajamas. Well, mom says that there are days 
just like that, even in Australia. Cute book, The Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Well, mom's right. There are days like that, even in Australia. Here's what I've learned. I haven't learned a lot in life. I try to, but I'm a, I'm a slow learner. But I have learned this. Bad things happen to bad people. And I've also learned this. Bad things happen to good people, too. <laughs> bad things happen, period. And we often don't know what to do about those bad things that happen. It gives us the feeling of wanting to let go Instead of holding on, we want to let go and we want to give up, especially if we don't know what to do with the bad experience that we find ourselves in. You know, those may be the worst days, the ones in which I don't know what to do and I don't know how to respond. I don't know how to make it better. I don't know what to do next. Well, hang tight. I want to read something to you from another book. This one's not a children's book. This book was written in the early 1900s. In August of 1903, this is what was going on. We're going to put a picture on the screen of this is uh, a ranger, and it'll be coming up in a moment. It's a ranger, and this guy um, had an experience that I want to read about. Okay, and Dustin, if I did it in there correctly, if I did, you might have to hit the uh, uh, the media shout blue might put it up when you get it in there. But if it's not up there, I I didn't do something right, which is not unusual. But this was written uh, about a guy in 1903 um, and he was at an Africa. He worked at an African game reserve. He was a ranger for that game reserve, you know, miles, 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 just an enormous thousands of miles, you know, create this game reserve. And uh, his name was Harry uh, Wall, uh, Wallhutter. And he was on patrol by himself, riding his horse. Listen to this actual, his actual words. He wrote this. Um, this is his experience as he described what happened. He says, uh, he says this, while riding my horse through an isolated patch, I heard two animals jump up in the grass in front of me. It was by now too dark for me to see. Two forms loomed uh, up within three or four yards. These I now recognized as two lions, and their behavior was such that I had little doubt, but their intentions were to attack my horse. Although, of course, I had my rifle, there was no time to shoot. And as I hastily pulled my horse around, I dug my spurs into his flanks in a frantic effort to urge him to his best speed. But the lion uh, approaching was already too close. And before the horse could get into its stride, I felt a tremendous impact on, uh, on me as the lion alighted on my horse's hindquarters. What happened next, of course, occupied only a few seconds, but I vividly recall the unpleasant sensation of expecting the crunch of the lion's jaws in my person. 
However, the terrified horse was bucking and plugging so violently that the lion was unable to maintain its hold. But it managed to knock me out of the saddle. The eager brute gripped my right shoulder between its jaws and started to drag me away. And as it did, I, so I could hear the clatter of my horse's hooves over the stony ground as it raced away with the first lion in hot pursuit, itself in turn being chased by my dog, Bull. Okay, so I want to give you the idea of the posture of what's happening. So, the ah, sorry, I, I shall not get up. Um, I apologize. So the lion is walking, okay, on fours. He, he has the guy by the shoulder, and the guy's body is being drug on the ground between the lion's legs. Does that, you have the picture of that? Lion's walking, the guy's being drugged. I was dragged along on my back, being held by the right shoulder. As the lion was walking over me, his claws would sometimes rip wounds into my arms. I was wearing a pair of spears with strong leather straps, and those acted as brakes, scoring deep furrows in the ground over which I traveled. So his spurs are dragging underneath the lion, back by his hindquarters, and dragging through the ground. All right, here we go. When the brakes acted too efficiently, the lion would give an impatient jerk with his head, which added excruciating pain to my shoulder, already deeply lacerated by the powerful teeth. I certainly was in a position to disagree emphatically with Dr. Livingston's theory, based on his own personal experience, that the resulting shock from the bite of a large carnivorous animal so numbs the nerves that it deadens the pain. In my, in my own case, I was conscious of great physical agony. And in addition to this, I was in mental agony as to what the lion would presently do with me, whether he would kill me first or proceed to dine off of me while I was still alive. Of course, in those few moments, I was convinced that it was all over with me and that I had reached the end of my earthly career. But then, as our painful progress still continued, it suddenly struck me that I might still have my sheath knife. It took me some time to work my left hand around my back as the lion was dragging me over the ground, but eventually I reached the sheath knife, and to my indescribable joy, the knife was still there. I secured it, and I wondered where best to first stab the lion. I decided finally to stick my knife into his heart, so I began to feel very cautiously for his shoulder. The task was a difficult and complicated one because, gripped as I was, high up in the right shoulder, my head was pressed tightly against the lion's mane, which exuded a strong lion smell. Incidentally, he was purring very loudly, something after the fashion of a cat, only on a far louder scale perhaps in the pleasant anticipa anticipation of the meal he intended to have. And this necessitated my reaching with my left hand, holding the knife across his chest 
so as to gain access to his left shoulder. Any bungling in this maneuver would arouse the lion with instantly fatal results to myself. However, I managed it successfully, and knowing where his heart was located, I struck him twice in quick succession. With two backhanded strokes to the left shoulder, the lion let out a furious roar, roar, and I desperately struck him again, this time upwards into the throat. I think this third thrust severed the jugular vein as blood spurted out in a stream all over me. The lion released his, his hold and slunk off into the darkness. Later, I measured the distance and found that he had dragged me 60 yards. Incidentally, it transpired later that both first thrusts had reached the heart. The ranger goes on and he describes a tree that he climbs into, he drags himself over to, climbs into this tree with his one good arm right before the second lion shows up. And just before he climbed, the lion climbs in the tree to eat him, because he certainly would have reached him, uh, from the nearby brush, uh, his dog shows up and his dog chases the lion away into that brush. Um, and this happened time and time again over the course of that night before somebody finally comes along and rescues him. And to that, all we can say is, wow, what a bad day. <laughs> he had a really bad day. When bad things happen, I have a tendency to want to know why. Why does this happen? Why did that happen? I want to know. Why would God allow that to happen? Since God knows, why would he allow it? Two big questions. Why does it happen? And secondly, what do I do? What do I do now? And those are the questions we live with when we have a bad day, a bad week, or a bad decade. Why? And what do we do about it? So what happens when we don't know what to do about something bad, when we find ourselves in a horrible circumstance? You know, we don't want problems. We don't want complications. I, if it's me, we, I'm sure you're like me, we would rather focus on something like maybe like uh, our bucket list, right? We want to focus on the good things, the way that we want them to be, the way we would design them to end and happen ourselves. That's the way we want. That's what we would rather think about. But there's something I believe that is more important than understanding why we have a bad day. Something more important, something we need to know more than what to do next when we have a bad day. We need to understand what do we do just in general with a day like that, when the circumstances we find ourselves in are horrible. You know, I think the truth is that opportunities in our life are often disguised as insurmountable, immovable problems. We know that the farmer prays for crops, right? He prays for a good harvest. We know that the rancher prays for his cattle. We know that the, uh, the shepherd David in the Bible, David the shepherd, he prayed for his sheep. You know, he wanted to keep them safe. He wanted them to prosper. 
But in spite of all of those prayers, sometimes crops do fail. And sometimes cattle get stolen and sometimes the sheep gets eaten by the coyote. So why doesn't God answer those prayers for safety? As we're thinking about David, the shepherd, it wasn't long while David, the shepherd, was then going to face what we call the giant, right? Facing the giant. His name was Goliath. But God had previously helped David build up his personal resume. You remember what was on that resume? David uh, had to kill lots of uh, lions and lots of bears, right? Who were attacking his sheep. So God is going to take David's past and he's going to place it together now with David's presence, his presence. So the lions and the bears that David chased down and that he killed, he did that so he could save his sheep. As it turns out, those weren't random events. Those happened to be target practice for David because now David is thankful for those lions and he's thankful for those bears because they were target practice as now he is going to face the giant. God was with David in the bad times and the good. And God was in the process of growing his resume so that David would know how to face a fierce opponent. And I want you to know that God is with us and that God is with you too. And God is also in the, in the, in the, uh, in the, he's in the process of growing your resume and my resume at the same time. No matter what you are going through right now, God is using that to grow your resume. So that one day, very possibly, like it surely happened for David, one day we might as we look back, be thankful for the bad things as we are for the good things, because it's those bad things that prepare us for the good things. Here's what I want to do this morning as we get started. I want to look at someone's resume. We're going to look at the resume of Paul, all right? But we're going to start with Paul, the Christian hunter. All right? We know that Paul hunted down and killed or uh, imprisoned uh, whatever needed to happen at the moment for him. That's what he did. And he hunted down, he killed, imprisoned Christians, all right? Let's look at his resume. We're going to find it, uh, the first part of it in Philippians chapter 3, starting with verse 4. Here's what Paul writes. He says, indeed, if others have reason to be confident in their own efforts, I have even more he says. Here's, and he's going to go over his resume. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish uh, law. And he said, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. That's his resume. Pretty impressive, right? So Paul has added to his resume. Paul was a Pharisee, and we find out he was also the son of a Pharisee. We find out that Paul was educated. So he was educated by one of the most famous rabbis at the time, uh, Gamal. He was, that's a huge deal. That was a big part of his resume. Paul was also, we find out, was a Roman citizen. 
That is a huge part of Paul's resume. Paul was born in Tarsus, but he was born to a parent that was a Jewish Roman citizen. And that means by default, Paul was granted that same Roman citizenship. And that was huge. Paul was present and he approved of the killing of Stephen. Stephen was the one that was out speaking about Jesus and they had him stoned to death. And Paul was there and he was like, go stoners. <laughs> and he was there. He approved of it. It goes on. Uh, later, we find out that Paul asked the high priest um, for permission to go and persecute even more Christ followers. But as he was on his way, something serious happened, and Paul's life took a turn. And it took a turn that we find out was guided by God. It was planned by God. And God continued what was happening in order to build Paul's resume further. But this time, he was building Paul's resume as a follower of Jesus, not Paul the Christian hunter. It was now Paul the Christian. So Paul himself, he could have written a little book called this, called Paul and some terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. Here's what Paul's resume began to look like as Paul lets us know in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to this. Paul said, five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Interestingly enough, the Jewish leaders were allowed by God to give people up to 40 lashes. But just to make sure they didn't break the law, they stopped at 39 every time. <laughs> and he says, five times I was given 39 lashes. It's like, gee, thanks, guys. I only got 195 lashes instead of 200, right? He says, five times that happened. Verse 25, he says, three times I was beaten by, uh, with rods. That doesn't sound so bad. It sounds like something maybe you would see on Little House on the Prairie. They get a stick and slap their hands maybe. No, 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 no. When the Romans beat you with a rod, they beat you right up to the point often of death, and then they would stop. It was severe. It was massive, and it destroyed your back. He says, three times that happened to me. Three times. See, the Romans were experts at stopping just before you died. And I'm wondering, did God see this coming? I can imagine Paul thinking, did God see this coming? Man, that does not sound like a winning life to me where everything works out great for Paul. You become a Christian and then everything just goes up and to the right. It's all great from here. No, 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 not at all. And it leaves us thinking, what's going on? What's that? What do I do with this? What's going on? Then he says, Paul says, once I was stoned. We're not talking about 420. This was a real stoning. This is what it really meant to be stoned. So the Jewish leaders, they dragged Paul to the edge of town. They picked up large rocks and they began to hurl them at Paul, who is now on the ground. They hurled them at his body and at his head over and over and over again. And let me tell you, the purpose of stoning was to kill them. And here's how serious this was. We just glance over it. Oh, by the way, I was also stoned, Paul says. They stoned him so severely and so massively that it appeared that Paul was dead. 
that there was no more life in Paul. He appeared dead. But somehow there was a glimmer of life. That heart was somehow slowly beating, even with all the blood loss. They thought he was dead, but somehow he survived it. Wow. Amazing. That's a bad day, right? Listen, what we're describing this morning does not sound like the American gospel that wrongly promises a life of health and wealth and prosperity. The American gospel says that every time you get sick, it is God's will to heal you. And if you do not get healed, it's a problem of faith. That's the American gospel. The American gospel says, you know what? It is God's plan for you that you be prosperous and everything you do, you prosper, including money and wealth, right? That's the American gospel saying that's God's plan for you. And if you have enough faith, you'll get that. But according to God, I want you to hear this. There is no such thing as the American gospel, according to God. There is only his gospel. And his gospel says, take up your cross. This was before Jesus had taken up his cross. Before Jesus had gone to the cross, Jesus said, if you follow me, you're going to pick up a cross, not a cross of jewelry, not a cross of decoration. It is a cross of suffering and pain and death. God's gospel says there's a cross involved. There's a cross for Jesus. There's a cross for us. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. Follow me into whatever happens next. Even if you don't know what that is, even if you don't know how to handle that, even if you don't know what to do once you get there, Jesus just simply says, follow me into whatever's next. And that's what Paul did. His resume com continues. He's not through. He says, three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. Now, listen, I want you to understand. Paul, uh, he is not trained in this. He's not trained in how to survive shipwrecks. He doesn't know what to do or how to handle this. Verse 26, he says, I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. See, Paul was a Pharisee, an expert in following the law. He was not an expert in self-defense. He didn't know what to do. He says, he goes on, he says, I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced dangers in the cities and in deserts and in the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring, that's hanging on, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty, and I have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough to keep me uh, warm. Listen, Paul was an academic. 
That's who he was. He was not a survivalist. He didn't know how to stay alive in situations like this. So we can say clearly that Paul had true grit. Paul was determined. He was determined to hold on and to not give up even when he didn't know what to do, didn't know how to handle a situation. And to that, we can just simply say, wow, what a resume. What a resume he has. You look at any one of those things for us, and we might think, wow, that is a horrible resume. I mean, from our view, it is horrible. I mean, where was God when all of this was happening? That's horrible. But remember what we said in week number one of this series. God has a different view than we do. We are stuck right here in this moment. You can't move to the future or the past. You have right now, this moment. We are stuck in this moment of time, right? We're stuck in this moment of time. And God is not stuck in a moment in time. No, he is not stuck in the present. From God's view, from his perspective, scripture tells us that God is in front of us. Time-wise, he's behind us. Time-wise, he's in the future, he's in the past. He's above us and he's under us. That's what scripture tells us. God is in the future right now. At the same time, he's also in the past and present all at the same time right now. God has a complete view. We have a tiny slice of the pie view. Our view is only right here, right now. We're stuck in this place in time and we're stuck in this space physically. But God is neither stuck in time, and he's neither stuck in a physical location. Often when I'm in a spiritual or emotional low, you know what's happened for me? I have zoomed in. My view has zoomed in on that specific problem, and that's all I can see. I am locked in, and I am focusing on what it is that I don't like about me or what I don't like about that person. I'm zoomed in or what I don't like about this circumstance that I'm in. I'm zoomed in. We all tend to do that. We zoom in on a problem person or a problem circumstance, right? And we're complaining inside our minds. If other people are around us, they may not hear, but in our minds, we're complaining, right? We're complaining in our heads, maybe complaining out loud. And we have zoomed in and we're focusing on that tough situation with that person or that tough circumstance in which we find ourselves. And when we do, here's what happens. Usually the solution to get out of that is for us to zoom out Instead of in, zoom out and get a bigger perspective. Instead of narrowing down to that one problem, we need to zoom out and get a different view, a bigger picture again. But how do we do that? I'm going to give you a life secret that we find in Scripture. Here it is. The fastest way to zoom out, to get a bigger perspective, is to worship God in that moment. In that moment when you don't know what to do, in that moment that that circumstance is so huge and so big, to zoom out, to help us zoom out, we begin to worship God and things begin to zoom out. Don't let what's wrong with you or what's wrong with your circumstance keep you from worshiping what's right with God right now. Let me say that again. 
Don't let what is wrong with you or wrong with your circumstance right now keep you from worshiping what is right with God right now. Zoom out, refocus, reframe the circumstance through worship. You see, worship helps us shift from what is wrong with my circumstance to what is right with God. And that's exactly what we saw with Paul and Silas last week. They were severely beaten. That was one of the times he just mentioned three times I was beaten with canes, rod with rods. Uh, That was one of those times. They were severely beaten almost to death. And then they were thrown into prison. But what we found out last week is they zoomed out from that painful circumstance and they began to worship God right there in prison in the condition they were in. They were refocusing on this, that Jesus Christ is God. They got a bigger perspective. Jesus Christ is God, and Jesus Christ left the luxury of heaven to walk in my shoes here on this earth, but he remained sinless. They zoomed out and they were worshiping God. Jesus Christ, who is God, who was whipped and beaten nearly to death. And then he went and died on the cross. They zoomed out and refocused on that. They refocused on the fact that we can experience grace, which means Jesus is going to give me something I don't deserve a relationship with him. And they refocused on mercy, which means he's not, Jesus is not going to give me what I do deserve, which is an eternity separated from God. They zoomed out and they were able to refocus on the unconditional love of Jesus Christ, who is God. They were able to zoom out and understand that Jesus right now in this moment is out They're preparing a place for me in a real place called heaven. A place where there will be no more pain, no more tears, and no more sorrow. They were able to zoom out and refocus on what is right with God instead of what was wrong with their circumstances. In fact, they didn't know what to do about their circumstances. But here's the truth. Our circumstances don't determine how we feel. Rather, our perspective or our perception of our circumstance does. You know, there might just be two kinds of people in the world. Complainers and worshipers. Complainers are always going to find something wrong and they're going to complain about it. Always. Worshippers are going to always find something to praise God about. And the things you complain about, you know what happens? Those things become the very chains that imprison us. When you don't know what to do, worship is the way out. Worship reframes our problems and refocuses us. And we're going to land this plane fast today right here really in just a moment. Our worst days, they can become 
our best days. You realize that God often recycles our pain and he uses that pain for someone else's gain. In fact, the more problems you have, the more potential you have to help other people. Isn't that right? Our ability to help others heal is limited to where we have been wounded. And listen to how Paul, who had those very horrible, no good, bad days, listen to that same man talk about how God can redeem all of that pain. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, He, that's Jesus, God, He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. And Paul gives us a new perspective on this pain. In a letter he wrote to the Philippians, here's what he said in Philippians 1 verse 29. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. I want to pause on this for a moment. The privilege. The Greek word that we see here as translated as privilege, that Greek word literally means this, to show favor, privilege, to give freely, to give or to grant graciously and generously with the implication of goodwill on the part of the giver. And God says, as if to say this, God is doing you a great favor by giving you the precious gift of suffering. Wow. Maybe we should stop asking God to get us out of a difficult circumstance and start asking him what he wants us to get out of that difficult circumstance. You know, as we look in Scripture, it, it appears that no one had more problems than Paul. It appears that no one had more adversity than Paul. But God used his, promise, uh, his problems, God used those to increase Paul's capacity. Wow. The more problems you have, the more potential you have. Even when we don't understand, even when the source of that pain may be so very evil. Listen, I know specifically some of us in here in this room this morning and some of our folks in uh, Malvern right now sitting in that worship theater as well. I know personally we have many people there and we have many people here who have suffered at the hands of someone who was very evil and you suffered some kind of great loss or great pain. I realize this. I know this. Even when we don't understand the pain because it is so very evil, don't miss this. God still wants to heal that pain you're experiencing and he wants you and me to hold on 
even if we don't understand why we have to go through that pain. He wants us to hold on. And in doing so, he will make us stronger. And my friends, that holding on, that is true grit. In doing so, in holding on with that true grit, God is going to give us the potential to help many other people through Christ. Wow. So what does all of this mean for today? Here we are. We're ending very quickly. This is it. It's kind of a whiplash ending. What, is, what are we going to do with all this today? We're simply saying this. God desires for you and me to have true grit, to hold on even when you don't know what to do. To hold on, here's how, through worship. So step one in this healing process of whatever pain that is we have, step one in the healing is for us to zoom out from that problem through worship. And here's what we want you to do this week. Let's ask ourselves, this. What is one area today in this season of my life, one area that I need to replace complaining with worship? What is that area in my life? And the reason is so that I can have true grit, so that I can hold on even when I don't know what to do. Let's pray. God, when things get tough, when we don't know what to do, may we zoom out from that problem and may we simply worship you. May we not let our circumstances keep us from remembering that, God, you are absolutely good. Jesus, many of these things we face, they're building a resume. You're doing that with us. You're building our resume, preparing us for something later. So that as we face difficulties now, God, will you help us to have the true grit to hold on even when we don't know what to do so that we can help others later. Help us to hold on and not give up. And to do that, Jesus, we need your help. We need your help to zoom out right now, to zoom out from our problems, to zoom out and worship you so that we can worship all the good that is in you, Jesus. And that's what we want to do corporately right now. Whether we sit, whether we stand, whether we clap, whether we raise a hand or hold our hearts. Right now, Jesus, we are going to worship you. And it's in your name, Jesus, the only name that has been given to us for salvation. It's in your name we ask these things. Amen.